Good morning, New Life Church. It's good to be here with you today. Um, this is actually part 14 of Andrew's Old Testament series, but as you can see, I'm not Andrew. So this is an extra special interlude this week. And um, what we're going to look at today is, as the title says, the Old Testament and history. And the goal is for today that we're going to look at where archaeology shows us that Bible history and world history are the same. Um, we don't need evidence from archaeology to prove to us that God is real, but it can be a great encouragement to us to see that things do indeed match up. And Bible history is not a separate thing from world history. It's not sort of happening in its own little stream over here and the rest of the world carries on over here. Bible history actually happens within world history. I know God's in charge of everything, but like those events happened while other events were happening elsewhere in the world. It's not happening sort of the other side of some magic wardrobe. Now here at New Life, we get a very good spiritual diet, very balanced spiritual diet, full of lots of healthy stuff for our souls. And so this week is like, this is like a supplement to boost our immune system. This is going to boost our um, uh, our just confidence that the Bible really is what it says it is. Even though we don't need all this in order to believe what God has done for us, this is just a huge encouragement. And um, actually, we're encouraged to remember things. It says in Psalm 143, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. And the similar words in Psalm 77, the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So we should remember what God has done for his people. Uh, even as we did um, this morning, we remembered what Jesus has done for us. And we remember these things. And we continue to remember not only what God has done, but what he is doing. And uh, this morning we broke bread together earlier. And what we will see today will help us have a clearer picture of the things that God has done in the past. Now, just under... Three kilometres from here, uh, walking distance from my house, is in the ROM in Toronto, right here in Toronto, you can see in the ROM an object that belonged to someone who we can see in the Bible. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. And you can also see an object that when the children of Israel were exiled from Jerusalem, they would have seen. And so we have these two things, one which basically will bracket the whole history of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. So let's see. We're going to follow it, follow through chronologically. So our first things will be in Exodus and Judges. Then we'll see some things in the books of Kings and Chronicles and then some things that are referred to in the Prophets. Oh, Exodus and Judges. In Exodus 1.8, we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, 
who did not know Joseph. And this fellow was a pharaoh called Ahmos. He came to power in Egypt. Uh, they had driven out the, the Hyksos, who were not Egyptians. They were, they were Semitic people. And the Egyptians finally reasserted themselves, drove them out, and Ahmos became pharaoh. And he was worried that the Israelites, who were also Semitic people, like the Hyksos were, he was worried that the Israelites would side with the Hyksos if ever they tried to come back and reestablish their power. And that's why he was, he, he began this process of being really cruel to the Israelites, to enslaving them. And subsequent pharaohs followed on with that and the, the, the oppression got worse and worse, but it's Ahmos that started it. And I have a picture of the pharaoh Ahmos. There he is, these chubby little cheeks. The Egyptians were really good at the most amazing crowns. So here's his most amazing crown. And this is the pharaoh Ahmos, who, but it was not that that we see at the Rom. It's his dagger, his actual dagger. This is a bronze dagger. It's about this long, I think, maybe a bit longer. I think I thought it was a sword when I saw it. So it's a kind of intermediate. It's a serious, this is a serious weapon. And we know it's his because on the end of it, it has his name. That little sort of oval, it's called a cartouche, that has his name in it, written in kind of birds and things. And um, if you were a pharaoh, you got to have your name written on your possessions engraved in bronze you didn't have to wait for your mum just to write your name with a sharpie which most of us have to put up with so that's how we know that belonged to the pharaoh Ahmos. moving on to the book of judges and the judge samson now around 1200 bc which is sort of in the middle of the period of the judges most of the major bronze age civilizations around the mediterranean and across the middle east uh collapsed in, in actually quite a short space of time, one after the other, like dominoes. No one particular precipitating factor. It was just a lot of things happened in that time. And once one fell, all the systems began to fall apart. There was a huge, extensive trade system right across the, um, the, the Mediterranean and right across uh, what's now Iraq and Iran and, you know, through Turkey, all these areas. And that just completely fell apart. And that is really characterizes this period of the judges that's what happened in the middle of the period of the judges and even strong kingdoms like Egypt and Assyria were seriously weakened after this there was not one major city in what was then the world that survived they were all flattened burned destroyed it was a desperate time now in this time Israel had no leader no central leader but God would raise up a judge in local areas when there was a time of need when they were being oppressed by their um, enemies. And one of these judges was Samson, who God used to uh, fight against the Philistines. And we're probably all really familiar with the story of Samson, who and how he was uh, betrayed by Delilah and captured by the Philistines and then imprisoned and blinded. And then all the lords of the Philistines had a great feast in the temple of their god Dagon at Gaza, where they brought in their fallen enemy Samson as entertainment. And we read, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer 
a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson into our hands. And when their hearts were merry, they called Samson out of the prison and they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there and on the roof. There were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. These buildings weren't like one great big hall, not like the gym where we, not you could get 3,000 people in there anyway. But there would be smaller rooms and other bits and pieces and space on the roof. And people could have been crammed in all over the place. So, um, you know, it's probably not an impossible figure. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, this Samson was a big guy. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed at his life. So he really dealt the Philistines a blow. This is all their leaders. Now, where did this happen? We ask. Here's a picture. There were um, there were excavations done, some near Gath and some near Tel Aviv, and they found they found the remains of temples to Dagon from the time of the Philistines. This one is near Gath, and you can see, look, two pillars. And you guess that there's a guy in the back. I'm assuming he's a normal height guy, and he's not like. 15 feet tall or only 3 feet tall, and you can see how the pillars are placed. And all the main beams holding up the roof would have rested on these pillars. So when, but they were probably bases with wooden pillars on. So when Sampton pushed them out, and there's a weight of all those people on the roof, never going to be a happy ending. And here's one. This is, this is another one. This is near Tel Aviv. This was excavated earlier than the other one. And in the middle, you can see the base of a pillar. And when they dug down further, you can see really clearly the bases of the pillars. So when we read about what Samson did, this is not being made up. This is what these temples are like. Now, none of these are the temple at Gaza where um, Samson was, but that's either because they haven't found it yet, or it could be there's a housing development over the top of it. Moving on to what's happening in the books of Kings and Chronicles. And we see the name there, Shishak. Now we read about Shishak with um, King Rehoboam. Let's just go straight into Rehoboam's story. When the rule of Rehoboam was established, Rehoboam followed straight on from Solomon. He was the son of um, Solomon. He was not a wise person. But he was established and he was strong. He abandoned the law of the Lord. And all Israel with him. So he was not a good influence on the country. This is five years after Solomon's died. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they'd been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukayim and the Ethiopians. So he had this massive, massive army. 
and he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. There was a lot of wealth there. Solomon had amassed a lot of wealth. And Shishak happily took it home to Egypt. And here's a picture of him. Look at that. The Egyptians were really good at fancy headgear, weren't they? This is Shishak carved into a wall. And all that writing around him is declaring his victories, what cities he'd captured, listing the stuff he's brought home with him and what a great pharaoh he is. He's done all these amazing things. Now, actually, Jerusalem's not listed on there. And people think that it's possibly because, in fact, um, Rehoboam had paid him off with all this gold. So he couldn't count it as a city that he'd flattened and looted because he'd been paid off. So he doesn't get to mention. But there he is, King Shishak, or he's called Shoshank. Shoshank the first or second, some number like that, um, in Egypt. And that was, he'd attacked Jerusalem in 926 BC. Now, we move on to Jehu. Now, Jehu was a king of the northern kingdom because under Rehoboam, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And sometime later, we have a king of the northern kingdom, Israel, who was called Jehu. And let's read what the Bible says about him. Then Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. This sounds like a really good start, doesn't it? But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was the first king of the northern kingdom with which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. So Jehu wiped, wiped out some of the false worship, but he didn't get rid of the golden calves. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So he'd done some of what God had asked. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not sin, turn from the sins of Jeroboam with which he made Israel to sin. And in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael, who was king of the Arameans, sort of slightly to the northeast, Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Manassites, from Aroer, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. So Hazael was really causing trouble. And while Jehu was king of the northern kingdom, he was king from 841 to 814 BC. So he had a reasonably long reign. But during that time, he was increasingly harassed by Hazael, king of the Arameans. And the evidence is that he, in fact, turned to the Assyrians for help. And there's actually several records that record these things that Jehu did. And one of them is recorded on a, a, a big stone thing called, but wonderfully named, the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III, which was made in 825 BC, and which can seen, be seen in the British Museum, where I took these pictures of it. There it is, and there's a tourist for scale. And it's quite a spectacular thing. And you can see there's five rows of pictures, and these are different nations. 
that Shalmaneser ha- has either conquered or has agreements with, and they're bringing tribute, which is like tax, like we'll bring you this tax and then if there's a battle, you will help us in the battle. And so the second row is actually Jehu bringing his um, his tribute, his tax. And the, the writing on the, the obelisk is in Acadian cuneiform, which I can't read. Uh, you'd be amazed to know. <laughs> and the text, though, is written above the picture. So above the second row, it reads, I received the tribute of Jehu, son of the people of the land of Omri, silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden vase with a pointed bottom. It's very specific. Golden tumblers, golden buckets, tin, a staff for a king and spears. And so here are those pictures of Jehu and his retinue bringing the items listed. There he is. There's Jehu kneeling before Shalmaneser. Now, amazingly, this is the only known contemporary picture of any king of Israel or Judah. And there he is, Jehu. He's got a little toque on there. And he's bringing his tribute. Now, I think the people behind him are actually Assyrian officials. And we move on to the next. As you go round the obelisk, here's the next one. And look, I think these guys, these first two guys are Assyrian. See that second one? He's the, you get one of those in every situation. He's the one that's saying, hold on, hold on there. Stay in line, stay in line. They had them even in the past. And then there's the Israelites bringing their tribute. See the second one there? has got a nice golden bowl. And they're bringing things. And look, there's the, like a, a spear for a shaft for a staff for a king, rather. And maybe that second one, third one's got the vase with the pointed bottom. And I think he's the thing he's holding might be the ingot of tin. And they seem to have spears and look, the buckets and the, the, the other vessels and all the things. So like all the things that are listed there, these guys are bringing, they're all bringing their tribute to Jehu. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? And we have more exciting things written by, written for us in the prophets. Now this name, Tiahaka, you can easily miss it as you're reading through because it's such an amazing exciting story that we actually focus on other bits of this story so if i were to ask you to put your hands up who knows where he appears how many of you are going to say oh me 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 it was in the time of hezekiah you're right now we read in isaiah 37 the rabshake now he's like an official or maybe a general or someone of the assyrian army the Assyrians are fighting against Judah. In fact, the king of Assyria is going around flattening cities of Judah and now he's, he's uh, threatening Jerusalem. And he sent the Rabshakeh to say to Hezekiah, we're coming, you'd better surrender. The Rabshakeh returned to the king, Sennacherib, and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. He flattened Lachish and moved on to the next place. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush. He has set out to fight against you. So he's heard now that the pharaoh of Egypt is marched up with his army to fight against him. Does he send a message to Tirhaka saying, go away, go home? No, he sends... When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah in Jerusalem, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. 
Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's saying, Hezekiah, don't think God has sent Pharaoh to protect you. So the, um, this Pharaoh Tihaka was Pharaoh of Egypt in from 690 to 664. And this was a period when the Cushites, that's the people from Nubia, Ethiopia, they'd actually invaded and they'd taken over Egypt. So here he is. And this is Tihaka. He was fighting against the Assyrians. And so he'd marched up. If he could fight with Hezekiah, they might both uh, make something of it. But we know that, in fact, it was actually God who delivered Hezekiah from the uh, Assyrians by wiping out the Assyrian army. So here's the Pharaoh Tirhaka. Now, Sennacherib had been really, really confident that he was going to not only flatten all the cities of Judah, but that he would capture Jerusalem. And he wrote, or had his scribes write, I expect, on this object here. This is called the Taylor Prism. It's named after, I think, either the person who owned it or the person who found it. And it's a block of clay. It's hexagonal. It's about 38 centimetres tall. What's that? Like one foot and a quarter. And about 14 centimetres across. So it's not a huge thing. And it's written on in cuneiform. And it's in the British Museum. And this, on this Sennacherib boasts about all the things he's done to Judah, amongst all the other places he's conquered as well. And it's, um, he says on this thing, as for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, sheep. So he's got lots of booty from this. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. And his towns which I captured, I gave to the kings of Ashdod, Ekron and Gaza. He's so confident he will win, he's already giving away Hezekiah's territory. Now, most of these stories on this prism end with, and then I captured the city and I destroyed it. He never says that about Jerusalem. He never says, my whole army were wiped out and I had to come home in disgrace. He just stops but we know the end of the story and so here's evidence that in fact there was Snacherib and he had his own views about Hezekiah now here's the most amazing thing in this prophet written by the written by the prophet Nahum now Tirhaka came back from fighting the Assyrians, went back to Egypt. But the Assyrians came after him. The Assyrians captured the northern part of Egypt. This is some years afterwards, after the Assyrian army is destroyed, they'd managed to get themselves another army and they came and took over part of Egypt. But they'd, by now they're under King Ashurbanipal and they moved down through Egypt and they attacked the city of Thebes. And this was, it was captured and that was the same year that Tehaka died. And this Thebes was such an amazing place that when it was destroyed, it actually shook, the news shook the ancient world. 
And it was such a shock to people that sometime later, the prophet Nahum is writing about the fall of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrians and God is judging it because the Assyrians were an extraordinarily cruel people. And Nahum writes this prophecy about the end of this cruel empire and he uses the example of the fall of Thebes to say to Nineveh, this is what's going to happen to you. Are you, he's talking to Nineveh here, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea and water her wall seemed impregnable. Cush was her strength, Egypt too. See, this was in the time when Cush was ruling Egypt. And that without limit, Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. And here we can see this is, should you have doubted it, this is an Assyrian helmet as worn by an Assyrian attacking Thebes. This was dug up at the, in the old city of Thebes and dates from that battle. Now, moving right along, still within the prophets, here's a name to conjure with. I'm sure none of you know who he is, this man Gemariah. But when you find out who he is, you'll think it's incredibly exciting. In excavations in Jerusalem, in the very part, the, some of the very oldest parts of Jerusalem, a house was found with a lot of clay seals in it. You would roll up a scroll, tie a bit of string around it, and to seal it, you'd have a little blob of clay and you'd stamp your seal into it. And that would, that would close up the, um, the clay would dry and the thing would be closed up. Well, the city was burned, so all these little clay seals were no longer dried. Now they were baked, so they're preserved for posterity. And a lot of them were dug up in this house, which apparently was the house of a scribe. And they dug up this one. Now, that's a very ancient form of Hebrew. It doesn't look like Hebrew looked um, later. It doesn't look like Hebrew looked now. It's, this is a very old form of Hebrew. But if you were able to read it, you would discover that it says, belonging to Gemariah, son of Shaphan. And I'll read to you some verses from Jeremiah chapter 36. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. They're getting really worried because the Babylonians are, are getting antsy and they, they feel that maybe the end is near. And then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch, who was Jeremiah's scribe, read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Gemariah was one of the scribes associated with Jeremiah. And we saw his name on that seal. I think that's incredibly exciting. Like, you know, suddenly someone who just has a bit part in Jeremiah is a real person. And we've got a seal that we can touch and feel and read. Moving on to, oh, this is an incredible, the stories just get more and more exciting. Cyrus and the fall of Babylon. Cyrus was the king of the Medes and the Persians. I think Persians date the beginning of their empire from this guy, Cyrus the Great. I don't think that's what his parents called him. I think that's what history has called him. Um, now, in the year 539 BC, Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And most of what we know about the Persians was written by the Greeks. 
who were their great enemies. So, you know, is it true, is it not? However, there are contemporary accounts of the fall of Babylon, some written by the, I think there might be two written by the Persians, and one from the Bible. So let's read these accounts of the fall of Babylon. First, in the Bible's account, which is in the book of Daniel, we read that um, the king of Babylon, a man called Belshazzar, could tell you lots of exciting stories about him, but that's for another time. He held a feast for a thousand of his lords, all these lords and their ladies, and like this was like a major, major feast. And they drank wine to their gods using the gold vessels, cups, whatever, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And they're drinking wine to their own gods. And suddenly a human hand appeared and wrote on the wall. The king, there's a fabulous description. You should read this in Daniel 5. There's a wonderful description of how the king reacted. He was absolutely terrified. And he wanted an explanation of what was written. And eventually they brought Daniel in to explain what was happening. Oh. Daniel answered and said before the king, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Lots of description. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory taken from him. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. Daniel did not mince his words. Then from his presence the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been found weighed in the balances and wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. They, who, Belshazzar had no idea they were even coming. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being only about 62, being 62 years old. So Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians led by Cyrus the Great. That very night, there was no long siege, there was no fighting, there was nothing. The leaders were all getting drunk, were drunk, partying, and basically Cyrus and his army, it's an amazing story, Cyrus and his army just walked in. Now this Darius the Mede character, I think is just the guy who was put in charge after they had um, taken the, the city. He's He possibly has several names because in the, 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 the Persian uh, descriptions he has a different name. Now, in the British Museum is a clay cylinder from the time of Cyrus and written on it is Cyrus's account of what happened in Babylon. And this cylinder was actually made in 539 
It's about the size of an American football, about this long, sort of this round. Like that. And there's cuneiform writing all over it, and it tells of Cyrus' conquest of Babylon and all that he did. And it says, Cyrus says, and Marduk, now Marduk is his god, Marduk was the god of Babylon. The great lord, leader of his people, looked happily at the good deeds and steadfast mind of Cyrus and ordered him to march to his own city, Babylon, and set him on the road to Babylon and went alongside him like a friend and a companion. I couldn't tell you where on this cylinder this is, but this is what it says. His teeming army, uncounted like water in a river, marched with him fully armed and Marduk allowed him to enter Babylon without a battle or a fight, sparing his own city, Babylon, from hardship. Then he says, I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, king of Babylon. And there's about four more lines describing how amazing Cyrus is. My teeming army paraded about Babylon in peace and I did not allow any trouble in the whole area. I took great care to peacefully protect the city of Babylon and all its worship places. And as for the citizens of Babylon, whom Nabonidus, Nabonidus was actually king, Belshazzar was like, his regent, whom Nabonis had made subservient in a matter to, manner totally unsuited to them against the will of the gods. I released them from their weariness and loosened their burdens. So he freed all the people from, from slavery, from indentured servitude, whatever it was. He just freed everybody. Then he said, uh, he took the, uh, the various idols. He, I returned these to the sanctuaries founded in ancient times, the images that had been there and I made their dwellings permanent. So he sent statues of God's home and made their dwellings permanent. He fixed other people's temples. I also gathered all their people and returned them to their habitations. Then at the command of, and he goes on about how he'd uh, settled these gods. And he said, uh, I settled all the people of Babylon who prayed for my kingship and all their lands in a peaceful place. Now, it's unheard of in ancient times for a city to be taken without a fight, just in a night like Babylon was, to be taken peacefully for the, the new army just to walk in and everything's, you know, joy and jubilation. There's, that is unheard of. And the fact that we see that in two accounts is, is, is just amazing. Now, these, these, um, conquering kings often sent idols back to the temples they came from. You don't want to offend some other deity. But this idea of returning people who'd been taken captive, sending them back to their homeland, this is something completely new. No king had ever done that before. And we see how this is recorded for us in the Bible. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, this may be the only copy we have of this bit, but we've seen what was on that other cylinder, so maybe there was another cylinder. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. So he let everyone go home. And we read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that they were um, 
they returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the walls and they rebuilt the temple and all these things were happening thanks to Cyrus. Now, Cyrus basically attributes all this to his god Marduk. We saw that in the um, in what he said on the on his cylinder. He said. Uh, Marduk set him on the road to Babylon, went alongside him like a friend and a companion. So he attributes all this to Marduk. But before Israel was taken, before the kingdom of Judah was taken captive, before Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, so this is 70, I'm not sure how long before Isaiah was, this is 70, 80 years ago, Isaiah said, to, the, to God, Isaiah wrote, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who, and he lists all these things he does, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and as the cities of Judah, they will be built. I will raise up their ruins. And he says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, Isaiah names Cyrus. This is, however, I know, 80 years before. 80 years before, Andrew's nodding. He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation is laid. And we saw that in what we said before. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And this is amazing. You compare this with what he said about Marduk on that cylinder. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Ismael my chosen I call you by your name I name you though you do not know me I am the Lord and there is no other beside me there is no God I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me I am the Lord and there is no other I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So Cyrus attributed all this to Marduk, who he describes as walking alongside him like a friend and a companion, holding him by his hand, directing him to Babylon to do all these things. What Cyrus didn't know at that time, maybe he did later, what Cyrus didn't know was that it was the true God, the God of heaven, who was doing these things it wasn't actually Marduk walking beside him holding his hand he was used by God to bring these things about and I just think that is absolutely extraordinary that we have this in Isaiah and that same testimony that Cyrus wrote himself we have one more exciting thing to look at I hope you've enjoyed all this amazing stuff that correlates Things, real things that happen in the Bible. I didn't want to do just, well, look, they had wine presses and here's one that's been reconstructed. And this is sort of what they look like. That's just really helpful. But I wanted like, this is the real deal. We read this in the scripture and here it is. 
And here's one final thing. And you can go to the ROM and you can see this. And it's actually quite a beautiful artifact in its own right. That is a glazed brick lion from Babylon. And these things, Babylon had this massive gate. It was an incredibly ornate city. It was really beautiful. And there was a sort of processional way through the middle of the city. And these lions were on the side of it. It's quite likely that some of those captives that Nebuchadnezzar brought back from Jerusalem walked past that lion. You can go to the room and you can see that lion. Doesn't that give you chills? Like this connection across time between you and these people of God from all that long ago. And there he is. There's the lion. We've looked at where archaeology shows us that world history and real history are totally the same thing. And we don't need the evidence from archaeology to know that God is real. Our, our knowledge of God isn't based on things we dig up out of the ground. But these things, this helps us to see that these, these were actual real people who walked this earth, who wore real clothes, who lived in real time, who did real things. And we can see the evidence of them and it matches exactly with what is said in the scriptures. And so I think that it can be really encouraging. I hope you're encouraged by seeing all these things because some of these things, the first time I heard them, they just blew my mind. I think it's amazing. And so we truly serve a great God. We serve someone who deserves to be declared to those around us. So I hope this gives us just um, a boost to, to talk to people around us about how amazing our God is. So let's end with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that everything we see in the Bible is true, Lord, that we learn a lot about you and that we can trust the Bible. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to depend on archaeological evidence. This stuff could all have rotted away and it wouldn't change your absolute truth. And we thank you, Lord, that you are constant and you are always there and you search us out and find us and you pour your love on us. Lord, we thank you. And we just ask you'll be with each one of us this week, Lord, that we would know that you walking beside us as a friend and companion, holding our hand and leading us into whatever it is that you have for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.